this disease, this disease of capitalism, this disease that has consumed the world and it's literally eating the world from inside out. Uh, it's created the new kinds of justifications for further destruction of the environment, the further plunder of natural resources and, and the removal of human beings and all the other beautiful creatures that exist on this planet. So for whatever purpose they can uh, profit yet one more generation of this um, from this from this scheme of 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 absolute exploitation of 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 everything, and so the banks that are collapsing means that we're going into a new uh, in, new sets of structures structures that are consolidating power into small hands, just like with the oil companies, just like with um, and so many other things in our lives, from food production to energy production to uh, to ideas uh, to obviously how we treat our bodies and how we cure our illnesses uh, to now how we conduct our economic affairs. Uh, we will now be entirely dependent on some digital, uh, some digit um, that God knows what that's supposed to represent and what are the, what is the sim symbolism behind these digits. There, there may be some kind of deeper ideological kind of understanding of why that's significant, why they need to go that route. And that's going to be even more difficult to defy moving forward. We're going to be, have a hard time to get ourselves out of this mess. That's for sure. Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging a mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca, co-host, teacher and socialist Andy Lipson. We're online at whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find that link to our site in the episode notes. You can also find our personal social media handles as at Don Eduardo Barca and at ZPKE on Instagram and just his Twitter handle as at jpomi 89 uh, Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications and share your favorite episode wherever you found this episode. All right. Well, if anyone notices on ours on if you're listening if you're viewing uh on any of our platforms uh you'll notice jessica is not on at this very moment she's having issues with uh power outages where she lives currently right all right so silicon valley bank the collapse of banks <laughs> let's see how we can discuss this and tackle this with uh a discussion with our former guest robert doyle uh, who's been with us before. Robert has been in banking for 12 years in various levels, from VP to CEO, any of those C-level suites, uh, and was president of a community bank for seven years and currently is a senior vice president of special assets. And I'm hoping Robert will be able to fill in more of his background since we've had viewers and listeners, new viewers and listeners since, and you've, the last time we had you on was some time ago. But welcome back, Robert, well. really. Yeah. Thank you, Eduardo. Thank you, Eduardo. Thanks, Andy. Um, yeah, it's been about maybe almost 18 months, two years since I've been on. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, in that time, I moved up from being a CEO of a community bank. It was about a $100 million bank. Moved up to our holding company. It's based out of Cleveland, Ohio. We are $2.4 billion in assets among five banks. Um, I oversee special assets for the entire holding company, which is talking about asset quality, credit quality, 
and working with our banks if we ever have a concern regarding credit or loans or anything that goes kind of south on the balance sheet. And, um, you know, we're mutual banks, so we don't have really anything south on our balance sheets right now, which is really good compared to SVB or others like it that have uh, taken, a, taken a turn for the worse. And we'll get kind of into that today, kind of talking about the circumstances around SVB and others. And uh, hopefully I can add some color and commentary to uh, kind of enhance the conversation and give you kind of a what it looks like from a bank perspective, you know, as to kind of the circumstances why that happened. Well, we're glad to have you on because it is uh, banking may not be my strength, but maybe we can share. Uh, Andy, you and I can share. Excuse me, what we know, what we how we understand uh, this recent collapse, and uh, and its aftermath. It may, is that maybe with the introduction we should head into? Andy? Yeah, yeah. Like I, what I probably won't talk about. Maybe I'm still trying to figure. There's so many different. Descriptions of why the whole thing went down in terms of the background to it, um, but uh, and I think we'll we're just going to add ours here. And um, I just well, one I had talked to you, Robert, maybe a few years ago about like having a discussion specifically about banking, and that happened when um, when that uh, GameStop st stuff went down, yeah. um, mm. and so we never got around to doing that. But I feel like this. This is, the issue of banking and financial crisis is not going to go away. So I think any one no. of these moments are going to provide an opportunity to kind of like get a bank's view and I think just a layperson's mm -hmm. view. So what I hope, what I told Eduardo, I mean, these these episodes are for me to learn. As, they're an episode for me to try to figure out what I think is going on and then to learn from, you know, my comrades like Eduardo and Jessica, what they think. And, and now you, Robert, you know, to kind of like share your really deep inside view of what's happening. Um, so I hope to start really with fir first with us lay people like me and Eduardo. So Eduardo, why don't you start with what you think uh, or what you know about what's happened so far? Yeah, so I'm, I mean, this is what, last week? Yeah, on Sunday, yeah, that, over the weekend. That, yeah, where most of, uh, most people at least I mean, I woke up Monday morning to the news and I was just listening in on uh, the various channels that I listened to uh, or, and podcasts where uh, over the weekend there were the, um, of, of that weekend, there were um, there were uh, the, the there was a, a scare of this collapse of this bank that was uh, bailed out is the word that I keep hearing, um, but not necessarily by our. Uh, the, the taxpayers, I, I guess that's worth the tricky part where that's I'd like to know more about. But where this uh, bank that hadn't any wasn't have any deposits insured was lending out or or did not have the the finance the the money that was there for the depositors, people who've invested, people who've 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 left their oh. money in in this like I think forty year old bank, I think 39, 40 year old bank. Yeah, they're young. Uh, I, yeah, I've never even heard of Silicon Valley Bank myself, which I live uh, just in SF and south of me is this bank that mostly has lent out money to uh, startups, tech companies, small startups, and and uh, and has uh, and has been running uh, without much regulation. The way that these banks work is that they the, there was they're affected by the interest the interest rates as well as the bonds that they had were 
they didn't have the money to be able to give back what people were asking for their uh, for their money in return. Right. So there were, I think, billions that were taken out during just that that weekend that was communicated amongst their amongst folks that are in the know that people who are obviously um, who mm-hmm. had money in there. That's what I'm. I I would like to know just exactly how these banks, because I I know that they can people when people deposit money, there is a maybe I guess what is it ten percent of that money is being held in a bank and what we commonly think of as a bank is yeah, that money is being held right and that we think money is just safely guarded and untouched and you can pull it out at any moment but that is not exactly how the, how banks work ten percent is kept no. of whatever we put in there and the rest is being flowed out either uh, lent out and then let's say a baker wants some of that money and then they then put it into another bank and so forth and it keeps and keeps being recycled throughout uh, this system that we currently have so mm-hmm. uh th- then when you want to take out your money such as people did then there's that collapse and then there's a scare and then other banks like uh the ones that we've seen currently mm-hmm. even first republic even recently then suddenly people are starting to bail them out and then you have jp morgan bailing i think it was investing or or, or bailing out uh, for first oh, republic so what was it? They're propping up the bank. They're propping out of banking and their investment. Not when they say you got to distinguish a couple of things with banks. When we deposit money in a bank, we're not buying in on a capital basis. We're buying in on a liability. So we bring money to the table as a depositor. We put our money in the bank. Yeah. Okay. So all these depositors come in at once to try to get all their money out, not a portion of their money, mm-hmm. all their money. They want it all. They want all their money out of the bank. Let's put it this way. If every depositor at Bank of America walked into Bank of America demanding every dime on, on their balance sheet, every dollar in their accounts out, BOA would collapse. Every bank is marginal. All banking is marginal. So when you say invest, you got to think of it. You're not buying capital. You're just putting money in to deposit. Just kind of be a safe holder, a, a caretaker of your money. You get a small return for that. You get a little bit of deposit uh, interest, whether it's checking accounts, money market accounts, CDs, that type of thing. And it's usually a small amount of money. I mean, even when interest rates were damn near zero, it was damn near nothing. Banks were making out of bandit because you have very low cost of funds out there. So what we do when we get all those deposits in is we only have two avenues. One, we have to keep some cash on hand because some people are going to need to pay for bills, need a little extra money walking around, or you know maybe they got to go buy down payment on a car. Somebody comes in, they take some money out, but not all. And not everybody comes in at the same time. And plus, yeah. not everybody is depositing all at the same time. So with all that deposit money coming in, we then have to either lend it out or invest it. We can't let it sit in cash. Even if that cash is held at the Fed for their overnight fund rate or wherever you want to hold it, you can't keep the cash in the vault. There's no cash with, you know, I managed a $100 million bank. We did not have $100 million sitting in a vault. We had it out and invested or we had it lent to people okay so Robert, if oh just a second so if if i may just before you enter into the weeds if if then what i've said what you think anything i said like the the common folk i think would be thinking this is a remembrance or this is just 
this is, uh, what you could not remember, I don't know if that's the word, but this is looking like 2008 to many of no. us. No, this no. is what I think folks are are feeling, right. or at least from my understanding. So we'll get into it. But I just, before we'll we even that. go in, I'd like for you to get into the weeds of it. It's just, I'd like maybe Andy just to give his, what his take on it before also he is influenced by whatever you might say. <laughs> we'll right. then say, and then you can go on further. But I'm glad you're saying it's not. So we'll, I want to know more it's, why you're saying that. It's not 2008. So. It's not. 2008 was a completely different animal. But this particular bank going down is the second largest bank failure in That's the history of the United States. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Washington Mutual was the first largest bank failure. Yeah. Outside of the Lehman Brothers, which are investment banks, that's a whole different animal completely. So as far as banks that people utilize, Washington Mutual went down in 08. This is mm -hmm. going down now. This is the second largest singular bank failure. Mm. But you got to distinguish 08 to 010 as a systemic issue within banking. Mm -hmm. Loans to people who shouldn't have gotten them. Loans on adjustable rates. People were not really you know, knowledgeable about maybe what they were signing in some cases. You had appraisers that were appraising properties way beyond the value. So we as a bank, we look at that appraisal and we think the bank, the, the property we're giving a loan for is a million bucks. In reality, it's 500,000. So we have loans that are worth more. Loans are out there higher level than what the value of the property is. We're upside down. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened in 08, along with other investment swaps and things that banks do. But this is that was a systemic banking issue. This isn't a systemic banking issue, but there are issues that are coming out in banking that SVB, I think, magnifies mm -hmm. and puts all other banks under the lens of scrutiny about how their investment portfolio is looking. Okay. And when I say investments, this is the side of the deposits that we're not lending. We, we don't have enough loans to give out. We got to put that money to use. So we buy bonds, treasuries, you know, things of that nature, some investment instrument to make more interest. So when we're doing that, an interest rate spike, that's where this started the, the, the ball rolling with SVB. But we'll get more into that a little later. Andy, did you want to comment a little? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, since I think that this is ultimately a result of a economic, political, and social system capitalism that doesn't work, I would say there's a commonality in terms of the, the, the notion of the tendency towards crisis boom and crisis, boom and crisis. The The actual detonator though here is not as much a, um, a fr fraudulence and and sort of, you know, people right. trying to get, get, get away with things. Actually, the Silicon Valley Bank was very much playing by the by the rules in, in a sense, almost playing it safe with its investment, with its, where it was putting its extra money. Um, and, and yet it still went down. And this is why I think it's also, you know, kind of a scary thing, I think for some, many of the banks, because many of the banks find themselves in a similar situation. Um, let me just say the things that I thought were interesting that I found out about this was number one is in 2018, Silicon Valley Bank had a de depositor amount of about 49 billion. And by 2021, it had $189 billion worth of deposits. Um, now, some of that can be put to the, to the opening up of the Dodd-Frank regulations, people said, but I also think many people looked at it as this is the silicon. This is an invest. This is a bank that's loaning out and making money off of loans to Silicon Valley uh, 
tech companies, which mm -hmm. we know through the COVID and this whole era with this whole region was a major pool of money. So the belief is, or I believe there's a relationship between some of the measures taken around COVID and the, the stuff that the, the, the Federal Reserve did in terms of pumping money in. The Silicon Valley Bank is a, is a beneficiary of that process that happened through 2020 and 2021. There were many wealthy people and well, many wealthy institutions that got rich. This was just one of them, which essentially tripled its deposits, even more than tripled its deposits over a three-year period. Yeah, that, that's number one. Um, number two is that, like what you were saying, uh, Rob, that much of their money, much of their extra money that they were basically investing was in the form of treasury bonds, which are seen as relatively safe. But those tre treasury bonds were bought at a price when the interest rates were rel relatively low. And then as the interest rates get high, the price of those bonds gets higher and higher and higher. And so they're actually get they're in essentially in, in finding themselves increasingly their investment is in something in which uh, that, that's whose value is, well, the value is going yeah. actually down, right? The value of the yeah, bonds the going down. inverse to the interest rates. Yes, right. So the value of the bonds going down. So, and so I think they're kind of holding. Well, the idea is they're kind of holding on, waiting for interest rates to lower again, so their investment would come back. And well, the way I'm hearing it, or some of the news is about, is like, oh, the other key feature of this of this bank is most many banks that we know about, forty percent of the person who the depositors make under two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Whereas this bank, I think 90%, wait, no, yeah, 90% of its depositors made oh, over 250000 Like this is a bank of the wealthy, basically, like four wealthy people. And, um, and, that the, and the, that's why there's kind of talk that figures like Peter Thiel were kind of behind the scenes saying, I'm kind of thinking SVB might be going down. You may want to get out. So there is talk of, of wealthy behind the scenes people talking about, Hey, get out! And that they and they're the ones who who pushed the run on the of all the essentially the depositors saying, "Hey, give me all give me all my money now," you know. And they couldn't come up with it, like you said, Robert. No bank could, um, and no bank no does bank it run that way. The the way, like you said, I the, the simplest way I heard a bank makes money is it takes everyone's money, it gives you back a little bit in the form of interest or something like that, but it uses that money to make a bunch the bolus of money to make a bunch of money off of its investments and loans and things like that. You're just getting a piece back, and the and the and the, the money the bank makes is the difference between the interest it gives back to all its depositors compared to the the amount they take in from the, all those people they're taking who are they're giving loans to or investing exactly. things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. So the other feature of this that I thought was interesting. Let me try to remember. Um, so here was the interesting thing. Because so it's not just SVB that goes down. Um, then there was Silvergate and Signature, um, and right. Signature was in New York um, City, um, or center, center of New York City. And there's some sort of talk about some of these things being connected to crypto and Coinbase and crypto accounts mm -hmm. uh, as well. So that's going to be a feature of it. That's more confusing to me because I'm not much about, I don't know much about crypto. But yeah, what I, I can say is, it seems like in, in the case of Signature, that bank was basically bought out by somebody and is re reowned but in the case of of SVB it seemed like they were letting the bank fail but they're making sure the depositors all got paid out like no one no one lost their money but the bank that was the way it seemed to be described to me and mm -hmm. sort of the if there's a scandal that's being talked about it's the fact that the government is basically saying well all you wealthy people who put your money into this bank you're all going to get every dime back 
the bank may fail, but you'll be fine uh, because, you know, whereas in other banks, people oh, not. Have money when, when banks go down. Um, even if the government says we will insure you to a certain level, basically the government wasn't promising any insurance to these people, but went ahead and gave them the insurance, if you will, we're going to give you all your money back. And they're saying, well, we don't want these wealthy people to feel like it's unsafe or something like that. But again, yeah. that piece of the scandal uh, or the criticism of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll get into like the, I'll get more into other background things that I want to hear from you, Robert, about like why this happened. Like, was this like, I've heard stuff about people saying this is a controlled demolition to empower the federal reserve to push, push forward a, um, a really uh, the digital currency pro project of the Federal Reserve to knock out mm -hmm. middle-level banks and to actually ultimately take all banks out. But that I don't want to get into yet. I, I think there's more mm -hmm. to discuss. Those are just some of the features that I remember hearing about in terms of this particular crisis. And what, what was most significant in some ways was this bank was kind of playing by the, if you will, playing by the investment rules and largely seem to get caught in the fact that there's just massive inflation and interest rates are lowering. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, with this bank, um, they were playing by the rules. Their loan portfolio was pretty tight. Now they only had about 40% of their deposits out as out of loans, which means 60% of its investment, which really tilts that asset side of the balance sheet to interest rate sensitivity pretty significantly. Because when you have loans out there, those loans aren't going to go away unless somebody refinances or unless you have an adjustable rate mortgage or an adjustable rate loan that the movement with the interest rate. But in those cases, if the interest rate's going up, that's just going to benefit the bank on the lending side. It's the investments that became a concern of theirs um, because they, they put so much into one type of investment or two types of investments for long durations. So you were saying about interest rates when, you know, they bought 2%, I'm just giving an example, 2% treasury three years ago, today treasury is almost five, talking about a six month note. When you've got a 2% bond in a 5% world, you want to sell it, you have to give a discount because you're, you got, you're not, you're that person buying, it's only going to get 2% when they could usually go out and get five. Same thing, the inverse happens. I have a 5% bond in a 2% world and I'm trying to sell it. I'm going to get more than that bond is worth because you're getting a better interest rate because that coupon is going to continue where that interest rate is going to continue until the bond matures. So the thing to think about too, about bond portfolios in banking, we have two things we have to do. We have to declare our portfolio either invest available for sale, which means we can sell things at any time or hold to maturity. And the one thing about bonds is if you never sell the bond, you will always get your interest rate, whatever that is. And you will get a full payback of your maturity level, whatever that bond is, a million dollar bond, you bought it for 900,000, you get a percentage and you get the bond to mature to a million, you make money, you, you get made whole at the end of the loan, uh, end of that bond. That bond may be 10 years, it may be 20. In some cases, you know, the bond issuer may say, you know what? I want my money back. I want to give you the money now because I think I can reinvest it somewhere else. And that's called calling a bond. Just real brief on that. So they had 2% bonds in a 5% world. They needed to get cash quick. So they sold some of these bonds, took a loss. That loss goes straight to the bottom line. It hits and impairs their capital. 
And one thing in banking is capital ratios. So regulators look at how much capital to how much assets you have. Usually they want that number at 9% or higher. If it goes below nine, they start to get twitchy. If it goes below eight, they get very nervous. So what happens is, is you have this bond portfolio sitting there. And if you call it available for sale, even though you haven't taken losses on it, those losses have to be impaired against your capital and drop that level of capital because you're going to be selling it potentially. So if that capital drops and that ratio goes with it, you're down into the sevens. Now you got your regulators in your face. But if you do that kind of rapidly between exams or between discussions with your regulator, it can really affect things very rapidly. So when banks are examined, we usually have a one year or an 18 month cycle to have exams. And in between that, every quarter, we get a review of our bank and we have to present it to the regulator and talk with them about it. Now, in this case, this bank is a state chartered bank. So they have the state of uh, California and you have the FDIC as your regulator. They're both coming in at different intervals. So they're always gonna be in your face. This bank was being reviewed constantly. The problem was, is when they sold those bonds and start and took those losses, it sent their capital level probably to a point where the bank got very nervous. They use that capital, they use that, that bond proceeds to give money to people. The problem is, is when more people want money and they keep coming in waves, you get to a point where you can't keep selling bonds. You can't keep taking losses because your capital is just going to disintegrate. So in that case, that's where they kind of stepped in and you know took over the bank as, as the feds did. Now, one thing we look at at banking is who are your depositors and who do you lend to? You know, are you too tilted in a sector? Are you too tilted to an individual or a few companies inside your deposits? So if they pull their money quick, are you going to, it's going to vortex and take others with you. In this case, like you were saying earlier, 90% of these accounts are over 250,000. They're not insured technically billions of dollars were in there in singular accounts. And it's a combination of wealthy people, but also more to the point, the businesses within the tech industry. Maybe not names we all know, but software companies, mm -hmm. things that we might know in the background of our computers, things like that. So you've got a very volatile group in there as your depositors. They're going to pull cash in and out. They're going to burn cash either developing things or having to make payroll or whatever is going to happen, that move, that money's going to move. So that's another reason why this bank didn't loan as much out because it never knew how long people are going to need the money for. But once you get a sense of how people are sticking to your bank, ins and outs, payments from loans, investments coming mature, all this cash coming in, you know what you can basically lend or invest. And like you said a second ago, this bank went from $62 billion to $200 billion in a period of two years. What were those two years? COVID. So you got all these companies out there doing PPP loans. All this cash is coming in. That happened across the country. All these banks got all this PPP money coming in for their customers. Blew up their assets. It came in too quick. They can't lend it out fast enough. So they have to invest. The problem here is, is that they didn't invest in the long, in the shorter duration bonds or shorter duration investments where it's going to churn back pretty quickly. 
they were going long game. They were taking 2% loan, 2% treasuries or what they call mortgage-backed securities, which are 20 year in, in length. And they were putting money, huge amounts of money into there. To give you a perspective, uh, let's see here. Their, their investments in mortgage-backed securities was $91.4 billion. That's right now as of the fourth quarter. And treasuries was only 16 billion. So they got a lot in very long-term bonds at a very low rate from two or three years ago. So now when the MBSs are out there at a higher level, go ahead, I'm sorry. Okay. Can you can you say a little because we, we haven't heard much about we've we've heard it's been more about the bonds that's been talked about. Can you compare a little bit more about what the difference, because these are both forms of long-term investments. Can you make a comparison about what distinguishes, what are some distinguishing qualities of this mortgage-based? Because it sounds like they had much more in that than they did the Long treasury. And can you right. say something about why, if it did that, did, did so it, it was maybe it wasn't just the treasury, maybe it was the mortgage thing. Maybe tell us a little bit about the difference in the nature of those yeah. long-term investments. Sure. So a U.S. Treasury is either three months to 30 years, and you can pick and choose whatever you want within intervals, and you'll get an interest rate that's guaranteed by the U.S. government. It's not going away. And it's a lower interest rate even than what we've called a mortgage-backed security. Now, a mortgage-backed security is a way in which many banks, usually the large ones, but many banks securitize their mortgages. So they get a homogeneous group of mortgages. They say, um, all of these mortgages are residential owner-occupied homes, 800000 and lower per loan. And generally, these the duration of this group weighted is 20 years. So they package it in a group. All these loans are still getting payments. And they package it into a security and they slice pieces off and they sell it out to other banks because they know this this is this is an underwritten. We see all the specs. We know where the loans are lent. We know what type of loans they are, what the general interest rate is. We know the underwriting of the loan. And so when we buy a piece of that, we get an income stream from that investment. So it's mortgage-backed securities. So you have hundreds of mortgages in this ball, mortgage-backed securities. We're going to take a piece out and a piece out, and we're going to sell them in little pieces and intervals. So we can get our liquidity back and go relend money because we can't, sometimes banks are so huge and they get so much requests for loans, they got to keep money in use. They, they can't let it just sit there off to the side. They have to take those loans, sell them and then, or sell those pieces in a mortgage back and get that liquidity back. So the, the difference is in US treasuries, they were probably going short-term in the MBSs, they were going significantly long-term. And would you say that the mortgage-based securities are or are not more subject to uh, interest rate issues. It is. Inflation. Same exact issues. Okay. So if you bought these mortgage backs two, three years ago, you're sitting at a 2%, 1.5% coupon or interest rate. So that's your bond, in, that's your income stream. And you're going to be getting that money in but if you need to get to that cash, you got to sell it. Now you're in a 5% world or a 4% world. And it, you're going to take a loss on that money. Or you're going to sit with a loss on your books. And and sorry, Eduardo, I, I'm just going to do a few of these questions for Robert. Sure. Um, the, then, because early on, you had said 
mortgage-based, like that this was not 2008. And yet, so I want to talk about that because, and yet this question of mortgage-based securities is kind of coming up again. We, I remember that was a big issue in 2008. So maybe talk about how this particular version is different than that, even though it looks like the specter of mortgage-based securities has once again emerged as something that has taken down a bank. Yeah. I think in this case, because of Dodd-Frank and the, and the regulations that came after the 08 to 2010 debacle, you have banks lending differently. So to even securitize your, your mortgages to be sold, you can't get into what they call non-conforming loans. So these loans that are inside these new MBSs have to adhere to a strict regulatory underwrite. You cannot have these loans with people beyond a 43% debt to income ratio. Their credit scores have to be at least, I think, 650 or higher. So you don't get a lot of like loans that are sketchy in there. What happened in 08, they were doing the same MBSs, and these were mortgages with people living in it. But the problem was you got a whole spectrum of credit risk inside there in 28 to 2010. So you have people with 500 credit scores getting $500,000 homes and an appraisal that is underwater on that loan. You multiply that, extrapolate it, bottle it up and slice it off. And then all of a sudden people stop paying because they can't afford it and it just collapses on itself. And this difference is is that it's better underwriting, stricter regulation. So then assess this, because one of the things that's been brought up around this is the fact that these SVB specifically came forward and said, can we have the Dodd, the Dodd-Frank regulations, you know, not really acting on us as much? At least that's the way I heard, like asking for Every the bank that. All banks. We all want it to be less. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, and it was, <laughs> and I think there was agreement on that. In fact, that was one of the things about Signature is that Barney Frank, who was part of writing that, was actually on the on the board of Signature, and mm-hmm. that they had kind of tried to walk out from under that. So, would you say that the problems they ran into is because they were they got out of the regul like they were able to sneak out of the regulation, or despite the fact that regulations were put on these things, they still got caught in a trap that's actually about inflation. Well, I think the trap is, is that interest rates rose so much in a very short period of time. This is the shortest period of time that the Fed has ever raised interest rates to this level. Yeah. Go back to just February of 2022. The Fed rate was zero to 0.25%. That was the Fed rate. That was the Fed. That's what we talk about when we say interest rates. What's the Fed rate, Federal Reserve rate? Yeah. Zero to 0.25. In a matter of Nine months, 12 months, up to like February of 2023, it's gone up now with just yesterday's increase to 4.75 to 5% in a blink of an eye. So these banks are kind of caught flat-footed in a way. You know, interest rates are soaring. Now, on a lending side, you're like, hey, great, we can get more for our loans. But on the investment side, it's a bloodbath. It's very bad. So they're out there holding 2%, 3% bonds, maybe even one and a halves. Whether that bond is mortgage-backed security, treasury, asset-based security, anything like that that's collateralized or has the backing of something. 
and now you're sitting with losses. You can't you can't sell it off. Now, hopefully, they kept enough liquidity through the all the PPP and all the stimulus money that came through their banks that they started to buy bonds as interest rates started to rise. So in a few years, when the interest rates drop back down, they're never going to see zero again. That's never going to happen. Maybe two and a quarter to two and a half. That's about as low as the Fed's ever going to get in the next five years, in my opinion. So when they come back down to reality, they'll be sitting with gains. But right now, nobody's selling bonds as much as they would want to maybe get rid of. Now, if you have some, if you're making a lot of money, you might want to sell a few bonds to lower your tax burden. But again, you don't want to sell them so much that it tilts your capital. Right. One thing about banking, it's kind of like, have you ever see the old Ed Sullivan with the spinning plates? You got to think of it that way. I'm spinning my capital. I'm spinning my investment portfolio. Oh, wait a second. If I spin too hard and it falls, my capital is going to fall with it. And now the bank is going to come down. So I've got to make sure I just put enough spin on it, enough spin here. So if I adjust things a little here, something might happen over there in a bank. So in this case, this is where they went a little wrong is how their durations are. One thing we look at in banking, one of the reports we look at is called an is called a gap report or a duration report. And it's a formula-based report. We look at our assets and our liabilities and try to match them up, kind of like how a bookie looks at the point spread. I want everybody to bet both sides so I can take the middle. If we tilt too much, say, to the asset side of the coin, where our duration is in the positive, so the optimum duration is zero between assets and liabilities. So if your liabilities tilt too high or tilt too heavily, you're going to have a negative, which means your asset, your 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 liabilities are going to reprice quicker if in a decreasing rate environment or an increasing rate environment, it will affect it accordingly. But it's okay sometimes to have a negative duration. That means your liabilities are heavier than your assets. If your assets are heavier than your liabilities, though, that's where you get into real trouble because now you're into positive territory. And we also look at that same duration report, and we also have what we call interest rate risk reports which we look at to say if interest rates go up 1%, 2%, 3%, 4 or down the other way, what does our capital look like and what does our income look like based on how we are today? So you can see into the future, well, if interest rates just go up 50 basis points or a whole percentage point, I'm in trouble and I got to do something. I got to change my balance sheet. I've got to change either the interest rates I'm offering or either in loans or deposits and get it more into balance. But so, so I'm assuming, and Eduardo, is it okay if I just kind of get, okay. And you just interrupt, you know, so I have a few questions that first, so it seems to me then that these are th basic things you're talking about that certainly Silicon Valley bank knew what their portfolio was. Oh yeah. And they knew that it, with each interest rate rise and the, they saw the interest rate rise. So they know they're running into trouble. Um, how, like, do, do they, what were they, what were they hoping would happen that was going to pull them out of this? Are they, are they thinking that, oh, the interest rates have to go back down again? And then I have another question. They were probably hoping that, they probably knew that interest rates were going to continue to go up, but, you know, everybody wants to think that they're going to start going back down. They're not going to go back down for a little while. I think this last quarter point, in my opinion, they're going to hold at the next two meetings and give it a good six months to see where inflation goes. 
because inflation was going in the right direction and has been for about six months. They needed to season because whatever the Fed does, it takes about three to six months to make its way through the economy. So they're not going to rate, they're not going to lower interest rates this year at all. I don't feel unless something really takes them in a different direction. And Keep another mind. question, another question. So Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, mm -hmm. it's in the, it's a bank for the tech sector. And the tech sector also mm -hmm. recently was, particularly in California, and I think maybe in other areas, was having a lot of losses, like, or at least right. they were having, they were, they were restructuring because they weren't making as much money as before. So mm -hmm. what extent is the fact that SVB is the, is the poster boy for this crisis related to their connection to the tech sector versus just the, this prof, this profile of investment that they did in, uh, what, mm -hmm. how would you characterize their reasons for being up, up the, the one that went down? Like versus the that being tech versus the fact that they've got all these mortgage-based investments mm -hmm. and and treasury bonds, right? They, uh, I think, where it went where things went different was, or at least why they became more of the poster child, and why I think the Fed, the Federal Reserve, and Yellen and everybody came to their rescue and said everybody's going to be covered, is because it was tied to the tech sector. The tech sector was having its struggles. Having layoffs, you always I've heard layoffs for the last three weeks, you know, 10,000, 5,000, whoever. And so they're just slicing and dicing. They're burning cash. So that gets back to the liquidity crisis with SVB. So you got a large deposit base with large deposits needing their money, maybe to settle a fire, whatever the hell is going on in their business model that they're restructuring, but it's going to take money to restructure that. Part of that's cutting staff, but that's that can only cut so far before you start cutting into muscle. Now you got to get to your cash. Well, you go back to SVB and say, I want my money. And it's like, I don't have it all. You know, I have it invested and I have this, I have that. So you got them, you got a perfect storm on the depositor side. Now let's lay in on the lending side. Who did they lend to? They lent to the same people depositing. So a venture capitalist puts an investment out incubator company, they decide they're going to get that money. They can't use it right away. Maybe they got $10 million. They're not going to burn it in a month. They're going to put it in a bank. They're going to go to SVB, park it. Now they're going to be maybe getting a loan from SVB on top of the venture capitalists that's also deposited there. So you get this amalgam of depositors and people who are getting loans with them all in the same basket. And then when things started to go south and people needed their money because they're in a volatile deposit base with a volatile loan base, you know, one thing we also look at on the on the loan side is who have we lent to? You know, are we too heavy in a sector? And there are policies within banks called asset liability um, committee reports that we put together that shows those tilts in the in the lending side. Are we too far to giving? Uh, one to four family loans? Should we be doing more um, commercial lending? Should we be doing more um, unsecured lending? What should we be doing on the lending side? And how far tilted are we? And we put we put caps on what we should do. Like we should only put 10% of our loans in the tech sector and 10% or 15% in construction. So any companies that we lend to in construction, we want to make sure those loans don't exceed a certain threshold. So if they're not giving a shit about where they're lending or giving a shit about how their deposits are, 
because it's great that they have all these deposits, but if they only have it among 15, 20 people, 20 organizations or a combination of the two, and 10 of them decide we're out, the bank's gone. So again, how do you fix that? Well, you could change your interest rates. You can introduce new products to give different depositors and a chance to come into your bank and start to move the needle on deposits to be more balanced and less volatile. But it seems to me in this case, they just went, they don't, they, not that they didn't care, but they didn't really lend themselves to simple bank management. Are we tilted too far in any direction, liabilities or assets, deposits or loans, or investments that kind of makes that duration out of balance? And how do we correct it to bring it as close to possible? So getting back to where did they go wrong, from a lending standpoint, they were gold. I will say that right now. Um, they lent money and they have very little charge off, very little delinquencies. It's good loans. Now, the problem within their loan portfolio is frankly that, you know, they have standard loans like house loans and business, business uh, real estate loans. But the majority of their loans are in what they call all other loans. So it's not asset based. So there's no collateral maybe behind it. Maybe they're lines of credit to businesses primarily or unsecured loans. They got $41.8 billion sitting in all other loans. I mean, to give you an example for one to four family loans, they only have eight, $9 billion in, in real estate loans, in, in family mortgages. Most of their lending is in what they call CNI, commercial and industrial loans, um, which is business loans, not necessarily commercial real estate. It is more equipment or yeah. fixtures or furniture or things of that nature that aren't real estate based. They got 16.4 billion sitting there. So between all other loans and CNI loans, you're talking almost. $58 billion of their $74 billion loan portfolio. So that gives you a perspective of they're pretty much going into some areas that are a little bit risky, riskier than my bank would go to, or most banks that are mom and pop, or even regionals at four or $500 billion are not going that direction. But because their nature to the, to, to the tech industry, they had to craft their products to help them, or at least be receptive to them. So you've got volatile depositors, volatile loans, volatile uh, investment portfolio, all commingling at the same time. When those depositors started coming in and wanting their money, either they wanted their money for simple business purposes or they got panicked. They wanted, they needed their cash. They started to burn in. Now, the one thing I will say what this bank did they saw something on the horizon. Banks can borrow from the Federal Reserve, borrow money. They can go to the Federal Home Loan Bank and borrow money to offset maybe liquidity concerns or needs, or maybe they are what we call in the banking industry loaned up. They put 110% of their deposits are out there in loans. You're thinking, how do they get to 110 well, they went out and borrowed extra money because they didn't want to stop lending. Because if they just shut down and stop lending for six months, who's going to remember to come back to them? They shut us down. They told us no. So they went out and 
borrowed money. I'll give you an example here. First quarter of 2022, they had $36 million, just million, not billion, $36 million in borrowed funds. Fourth quarter of 2022, $15 billion mm. in borrowed monies. Just literally um, two months ago, $15 billion in borrowed funds. Why did they go out there to get that? They probably had some liquidity pools happening in December, happening through January, and they tried to borrow their way to liquidity, but they got to a point where they said, wait a second, this we can't keep borrowing. We're gonna we're gonna get tilted with the regulators. We need to do something different. So they stopped borrowing money. Then they went out and started selling bonds to get liquidity. And that's where that capital got hit with a loss, took their capital ratio down. Their capital ratio is 7.96. That is horrendous. Mm -hmm. In the size of scope and scale that this bank is, that's low. I mean, if I was a regulator, I would say 7.96. You need to be more like 10 or nine. Um, there are new rules that have come out in banks called the community bank leverage ratio. They like to see it now at nine. Like, not that we'd be in trouble if we were between eight and nine, but they would have a pause for us and they'd say, hey, wait a second, you got to do something to shore up your capital. Now, I'm going to get into the real weeds a little bit about how can you manage your capital ratio? Well, capital ratio is simply capital as your numerator, assets as your denominator. If you want that ratio to go up without doing much of anything else, shrink your bank. Get rid of get rid of depositors, get rid of asset size and shrink it down and that that ratio will go up mathematically. You can also have it go down further if your assets continue to blow up. You can have the same amount of capital you had 3 months ago, but now your ratio is in the gutter because you're you're bank got even larger and you you got to do something with that now banks can raise capital how do they how do they raise the capital well they can issue stocks or bonds of their own and this bank could have done that they could have gone to an emergency situation with a venture capitalist somewhere somewhere some angel investor comes out and says i'll give you five billion dollars fix your situation but for that i get x y and z um they didn't they didn't seem to get that they well, can't issue the what I heard on that, what I heard on that was that there were people who were prepared to step forward, but the FDIC said, no, we aren't accepting that they come in and do that. And this is what gets to some of the things where yeah, there are claims, and I'd like you to assess this, mm -hmm. that um the federal that the Federal Reserve essentially was fine with this thing tanking. Um, it was gonna pay out for the depositors, and that there's a, a claim that. This was not like just something that happened as a, uh, as a result of the natural actions of banks, but described as almost a controlled demolition by the Federal Reserve um, to basically mm. start to break down these mid-level banks, force uh, force central, force essentially the, only the big banks to be around and eventually really to have moved all the banks to move towards a centralized banking system that actually ends up in the Federal Reserve towards a digital currency away from any of these mom and pop operations or even giant mom and pop operations like this yeah. one. Can you assess that kind of like that notion of what's happening here? Yeah, I would say, you know, it was controlled by the Fed in a sense by raising interest rates as rapidly as they did. Something like this was going to happen, whether it was SVB or some other regional bank 
um, something was going to happen to some bank at some time where more people wanted money out of their bank than they had in the bank. Um, now, as far as did they not allow, why did the FDIC or someone not allow an angel investor to come in? It depends on what type of terms they were going to be getting. You have to disclose that to your regulator. You're getting a capital infusion. Somebody's buying in capital into your bank, paid in capital. What are they getting in exchange? Are they getting, uh, you know, stock options? Are they getting, are they getting preferred stock? How are they getting that capital? Um, if they didn't like the deal, then they would they would exit, not just with them, but with any bank. Um, they just don't want people just going. They want, for instance, they wouldn't want some like somebody crooked buying into a bank and infesting it with their own agendas and things of that nature. Maybe they get were getting three board seats. Who knows what the exchange of value is going to be for that capital? Um, you know, to get back to the question on, you know, was it a controlled demolition? I don't necessarily know that it was, but it was controlled in the sense that every incremental increase in interest rates by the Fed resulted in more losses on their books. Um, they would have, not just them, but any bank um, who's sitting on losses like that and in a position with volatile depositors is going to have this situation. Um, do I think they're they do I think ultimately they want to get to a centralized banking system where you have like Canada only has like four major banks. They might have a handful of community banks, but literally a handful. So we have about forty seven hundred and six banks in the United States today. Five of them control eight seventy five percent of the deposits. So you got a lot of banks with a smaller piece of this and having previously been with a very smaller bank before I merged into our holding company, we were only 47 million. We were like a fly on their, on their butt, so to speak. They really didn't like coming down and looking at a $47 million bank. They'd like to go into big banks, look at them once and say, everything's great and move on. Um, you know, would, would do they ultimately want to get to fewer banks I don't know if they could ever get to fewer banks, um, especially to get to a Canadian model. Um, but like I said a second ago, five banks control 75% of the deposits in the United States anyway. So you kind of have that by default. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'd say with, with, the, um, with smaller banks out there filling niches that the bigger banks won't do, you know, some banks won't lend to a business less than for less than $25,000 or $100,000. Community banks like mine, that's our bread and butter. We kind of work on the crumbs that they just let fall through the cracks because they're not willing to do that type of lending. Um, it hurts us because it is small lending. And um, two areas I want to see if you can assess. Well, number one, how what would you say that this is in any way connected? similar or connected to what happened with FTX. And okay. two, um, Credit Suisse in Switzerland, I guess, yeah. collapsed as well. How is that connected to what happened here? I don't know if Credit Suisse is directly related to SVB, but Credit Suisse had its own concerns even for a while leading in. Plus, they're in the Swiss banking system, so they're, they can nationalize a bank in minutes, and they don't have a – they don't have the – the, the holdback 
kind of our government structure to their government structure. Now, when you get to like um, S SBX or whatever, Salmon Bankman Free SBX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that is a very con. That, that's going to be in a. That's going to be studied in business schools for the next century because that is such a convoluted business model that I don't even understand how this person individually was able to access the monies and spend the monies they did without the controls. Um, you know, he set up this exchange and the crypto exchange is great because people are out there buying crypto and they take a small piece of every transaction, just like a credit, just like a debit card in a way. Um, then he was able to somehow create another company and then take the assets over here, get a loan against it to start something else and then get another loan to start something else. So it became its own little internal Ponzi scheme. And the left doesn't know what Wright's doing. Now, it'll be very interesting when this thing goes to trial with Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, he's basically claiming, I, you know, I wasn't told I couldn't do it, so I did it anyway. Well, you got to know what the hell, what a bank is. I mean, you were essentially a bank, even though you're a non-lending, you're a non-lending institution. You're not lending money out to the public, but you're taking the public's trust and the public money coming in, like deposits. And you're making money off of it and you're leveraging that and you get to say i it's like the old steve martin bit you know i forgot armed robbery was a crime ignorance of the law is not a defense and i don't know how he's going to get through this defense but it'll be interesting to watch it unfold that is one thing i don't have a not experience on is crypto um i'm still trying to to understand sam bankman freed amalgam of many different companies and how they all had interfinancing and they used some of those proceeds to buy stocks in other companies and how that thing made money i think was in spite of itself because of scale you got what 60 billion 70 billion dollars or whatever the heck it came out to be um it's the biggest fraud in next to uh bernie madoff it's higher than him um in history too so I don't think he, he's going to be the last one we get to, but this one, he was, I don't know if that, he was not in the tech industry as much as he was in the cryptocurrency scale. Um, there wasn't as, there was no crypto in this, this SBF, SFEV, it was no crypto issues going on there. Um, it was just a matter of getting caught at the wrong time with the wrong deposit base. And that, but I think the, like, like I said earlier, just moving the interest rates as fast as they've done and not giving enough time in between. So let me digress one second to talk about in 1978, when we had huge recession, we had a double dip recession. So they started to move interest rates up to cool the economy. And they thought an interest and inflation started to come back down. Well, before they got down far enough, they said, OK, we'll start dropping rates along with it. And then inflation bounced right back up because the interest rates went back down. So they didn't let it, it, what they're looking at mentally is saying, we didn't raise interest rates enough. We dropped them too soon. Let's just keep rising it until we really see inflation take a turn. And I think the combination of this bank failure and the good re inflation reports, along with steady employment, they're going to cool on this interest rate thing for probably another two meetings before they make a decision about raising or lowering at all. I think this really gives them a pause. 
Um, even though the European banks raised their interest rates last week or the week before, I don't think they're going to raise them nearly as quick. I think no, none of them are going to do that for a while. I think they got to let it settle and see where it takes us. Because the Fed can only do two things. They can either um, move the money supply, buying or selling of treasuries. One puts money in circulation, one pulls it out, or moving interest rates. That's all they can do. The other thing is fiscal responsibility. Now, is the government prepared to lower their spending? Consumers are still spending. That's a big part of GDP. And government spending is a big part of GDP. But if the government keeps spending at this rate, I mean, he just turned in a budget of, what, $5 trillion? But there's a deficit of $2 trillion. Where are you getting the money, dude? You're going to print more. And you got a gasoline, you got a tire fire sitting out here. You're going to just throw gasoline on it and go, well, we're just trying to make everybody happy. Well, I'm not saying people should be left in the dust, but you got to have some fiscal responsibility on top of it a little bit. And it just doesn't seem we're going to get there on the political spectrum right now. But the Fed's doing what they can do. But I think they're going to hold for a while. And I don't think interest rates are going to come down till this time in 24. They might move it down 50 basis points. They're not going to touch it again this year. I think they're going to hold for the rest of the year unless something really goes out of whack. Inflation goes to kicks up again. Uh, maybe the uh, unemployment rate skyrockets. and Maybe they got to bring it down to get people to start investing again or buying things. Uh, on the investment, when I say investment, I'm talking about businesses building buildings, expanding their business base, adding jobs, getting the economy rolling, not just sustaining. But we'll see where that takes us. Eduardo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so First off, thank you, Eduardo, for just letting me ask question after question after question. No, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, I was speaking with Jake, uh, who we've, who's been on What's Left, and he said mm -hmm. he believes that it should have just allowed, should have been allowed to collapse. This is the way a capitalist system should function, that there shouldn't be any regulation. No, I'm and not that capitalist. if it would have... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a pure capitalist. Uh, I'm a cap I'm, don't get me wrong. I mean, I've been in business and banking for a long time. I mean, I did debt portfolios and acquisitions and servicing of loans and things of that nature. But do I think that they should let pure capitalism reign? No, because if you let pure capitalism reign, you're gonna you're you're the next thing that's gonna happen on a like a like a East Palestine, Ohio, it's gonna happen anywhere because left to their own devices, let's face it. I mean, did did uh J. Paul Getty or anybody, you know, Rockefeller, did they care where they're going to dump oil? They're going to put it right into a stream. They don't give a shit, you know, they're, they're left to their own devices without regulation. Now, do I think there's a burden of regulation? Can be, depending upon the industry who needs it or doesn't need it. Do I think Dodd-Frank was a good law? Yes, I do. Um, I think that it brought enough regulation to an area that was out of control to a degree in the 2000s. Um, and do I think they could back off a little? I think they need to scale it in different ways. A small $100 million bank is not going to make the moves Bank of America is making. You got to kind of put the regulation at the size and scale that you need to. But to get to back to Jake's point where he's like, let it fail. 
it was there's too much going on in the tech sector and you had too many big players within the tech sector at that bank if you let that fail and you don't know what the businesses and how many jobs were behind those companies that are in that bank if say there is 50,000 people and it's all going to hit in one one or two cities you know so they thought that this would this could create a domino effect and I think what the Fed was doing was trying to cauterize the wound and say, look, we're going to back you up and get your deposits and make them whole. That was a mistake, because if you watch Yellen's testimony last week and you listen to everybody starts walking it back now, they're like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. we have to make a consensus decision if we're going to save a particular bank. So what makes this bank different than my little hundred million dollar bank? Well, it's because this one had more integration into the economy, at least of a city or a state, than my $100 million bank did. So they may let a $100 million bank go down the tubes because it's like, oh, what does it matter? We're going to back them up 250000 each. Okay. Because 90% of those deposits are below two fifty, So you're backing them anyway, right? In the $100 million bank. In this bank, everybody was on the opposite side of the spectrum. They were too large of deposits. Now, the FDIC, let's talk about that for a second. FDIC insurance is a percentage on every deposit in the United States. Every bank has to pay into an insurance fund, just like you pay into your car insurance. We hope the claims won't outrank the amount of money in the fund. If they say right now all banks are covered 100%, there's, <laughs> there is less than 25% of that money available in the FDIC fund. It, I don't have a quote. Nobody sit and go, I looked it up and I here's my link. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just giving you an example. There's far less money in the FDIC fund. They could never cover it. Every deposit across every bank in this country. Think about it. I said earlier, five banks control 75% of our deposits. You're talking trillions of dollars tens of trillions of dollars. They don't have that at the FDIC. They probably have maybe a trillion tops, maybe less than that, maybe 900, mil, 900 billion. I say these numbers facetiously, but 900 billion, it's not going to cover everybody. So how's it, how are they going to cover it? Well, well, we'll just print more money, right? Because remember, one thing I, I want to bring out in this, and I thought I brought it out when we talked the last time about other things regarding economy, this government is under a new monetary policy thought process. It's called, it's called um, Modern Monetary Theory, MMT. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And MMT says if you're the fiat currency and you're the exchange currency of the world, which we are, and don't listen to anybody telling you the dollar's going away, it's all, no, the dollar's the dollar. It's, it's the only one that's stable enough throughout the world. The euro, eh, it's good for Europe, but it's not good for the world to exchange. And dollar is going to stay the currency. So you got the fiat currency. You have the exchange currency of the world. You can print money. And in MMT, the way they control money supply is taxation. They control it by raising taxes or lowering taxes. That's how MMT does it. The Fed doesn't do that. The Fed goes out, sells bonds or buys bonds back, moves the money supply that way. And up until this thing happened, they were starting to lower their balance sheet. They were starting to take money out of the out of the economy. They were taking cash into them 
getting rid of their lowering their balance sheet. Now this thing hit, and all of a sudden we got to like start backing up the repo market. Now I say repos; these are overnight purchases that banks exchange with one another. There were not a lot of repo bank markers going between different banks. So the Fed had to come in and stopgap that in the last two weeks. So the repo market is being backed by the Fed. The Fed is starting to raise their balance sheet again. The Fed has almost $10 trillion on their balance sheet. 2006, they had about $700 billion. They have nine, $10 trillion. Our economy is only about $28 trillion as an economy year over year. They have $10 trillion sitting there. So remember, when they print $1, it creates six in the economy. They have $60 trillion economic dollars sitting in that balance sheet right now in economic terms. So they have twice the size of our economy in one year sitting on their balance sheet, if you think of it in terms of dollar printed equals six in the economy. So if they're going to lower their balance sheet, they got to pull that money out. So it's like sucking things out of the economy. Right now, they're not doing that because they have to be out there raising their balance sheet to start to be prepared for any other bank failures. Most banks aren't tilted like SVB with everybody over the 250,000. Most banks, everybody, 80, 90% of people are below the 250 mark. We even had in my $100 million bank, we even had a few people with you know, 900,000 sitting there. But they trust our bank. They trust what we were doing with their money. No, they're not getting investment like they have stock and they can get dividends and things of that nature. But they can trust that their money's not going to be handled improperly. And they can trust that when they want to get to their money, they can get to it. Now, let's talk one more thing about how do you get money out of your bank? How do you put money in your bank? You go to your bank and say, I want to withdraw 50 grand. If you walked into a teller right now, they'd have to say, fill out this form. It's called a cash transaction report. You got to explain why you need the money, et cetera, et cetera. And then they'd say, come back in about three days and we'll have your money. Because we have to go out and order that money because we don't keep that much money in the bank. Because if we got robbed, we have certain things on our insurance where we can only keep so much physical cash in the bank. So if we got robbed and they took our vault money and they took the money from the drawers, we don't want them to have the access to more than maybe a hundred grand. And if somebody comes in and wants 50 out of the gate, we got to say, wait, we got other people that may want money too. You come back, we'll give you your 50 grand. And people get upset. Well, I, I thought I could just get my money whenever I want. Well, you can, but you're asking for a lot of money. And that's, you know, the whole teller drawers are going to be, you know, down and we can't help other customers. So Come back in a couple of days. We'll have your money for you. I can give you a cashier's check right now if you like, but if you want physical cash, it's going to take a couple of days. We can give you a cashier's check at any time. We just can't give you physical, tangible cash. What I think these people did at SVB, it was a lot of it was electronic. It wasn't walking into the bank going, I want my money bank. They were doing it electronically, trying to move money from bank A to wherever they wanted to deposit it, whether it's an investment account or another bank. They were trying to move things electronically so fast, the bank was just caught in a vortex. We don't have the ability to tell the person who's typing on their, on their keyboard, they're going to move $2 billion from point A to point B. Well, oh my God, we don't have $2 billion. We got to go get it. When you're doing it electronically, it's too quick. 
So I think what will come out of this is there'll be some new regulation about how electronic transfers occur and how ACH money moves, electronic money moves from bank to a, to what whoever else wants it to avoid this type of run on the bank. In a sense, this was an old fashioned run. Group went in to get their money out. They were frozen out because maybe the, the, the server was overwhelmed. Maybe the cust maybe the tellers were overwhelmed and we just shut the bank down. Kind of like what they do with uh, stocks. If stock market drops more than a certain percentage, they halt trading, get everybody to get their heads on get cool again. And then they'll reopen the trade. Same thing in banking. If everybody's coming in and rushing a bank, we're going to kind of hold the line, see if everybody cools down. Kind of like what Jimmy Stewart did in What's a Wonderful Life. Everybody came to the bank. And at the end, he's like, I got $2. We're still solvent right. because they still had some cash. You know. Well, I, so, I want to point to a few yeah. things though, that you did talk about. First off, very interesting, again, that the that the repo that repo term emerges again, which was a big, which was an initiating feature of something that was going on in the economy in 2019 or 2020. Yes, repos were a problem. Repos were a problem. And so you're here, I'm hearing it again. This is why, again, I'm really glad to have you here, Robert, because I feel like, problem. yes. And I just feel like I, the, the things that they're trying to escape always come back to like bite them back in, in a new form. That's that's one thing I see here. Secondly, I want to bring up that thing you, you raised about electronic transfers is that the people who are claiming that the Federal Reserve is behind this, actually, whether it's because of the, the dramatic raise in interest rates or whether it's specifically targeting SVB. And I, I do agree with you that the that the interest rate rise will do it, is that when the Federal Reserve goes to a digital currency that is a full digital currency, the claim that they're going to make is if you want an immediate settlement on your electronic transfer, you can come to us because we can settle. Banks won't be able to do it. You'll have to wait with them. That's one of the ways that they're going to try to drive money back to the Federal Reserve is to basically say, we can settle that thing immediately because we've got all this, we've got all this like this stuff on, on hand. They don't. And so this is part of this discussion that's happening about how people are saying the Federal Reserve is behind this, trying to centralize current um, essentially. I mean, what's interesting to me is I was listening to this guy um uh, what's his goddamn name? Sorry, hold on just for a second. Uh, he is a former bank guy, uh, Richard Werner. Um, and the way he was talking, I mean, again, this is just a theory. The way he was talking about the Federal Reserve and banks is sort of the way Allison McDowell was talking about schools in that, that the long-term digital plan was to eliminate schools altogether, get rid of brick and mortar schools. And his notion is, the long-term plan is to get rid of the, the formal banking system and to make the Federal Reserve the national, the national, even the global bank for everyone um, and through their digital currency. And that this, that they were going to move more rapidly there than they, and COVID was a, a part, a, a part of moving more rapidly there. They're having to go slower, but this, this is sort of a step in that direction um, mm -hmm. by knocking out these kinds of banks making them more and more suspect because it's not just SVB that has this sort of investment posture um, and starting to coax more and more money back towards the Federal Reserve and, and essentially in the long term, eliminating banks, eliminating currency, except for that electronic currency that they'll have. That's that's the way I've heard about it. There, I think there was a, uh, 
a Biden appointee. I don't know if it was for the OCC or was it for the head of the Fed. And I can't remember her name for the life of me. But she was of the opinion that the Fed was going to be the backer of all things. And um, so her she got shot down in her in her uh, try to get not try to get her past uh, the nomination process. She got totally taken out of the equation because she was talking about like exactly what you were saying. The Fed is the backstop. We're just going to deal with you're just going to deal with us. You know, um, we're not going to necessarily need all these banks. And they she was on the record of saying these things. And, you know, the Senate was like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> you're, you're way out there on the fringes of, of what we were even thinking of, you know. Um, do I think that they want to get to ultimate digital digitally currency? Just look at the move. I, I'm not picking on Joe Biden or his administration, but look at the move that they tried to make with um, within the, the COVID year, the early parts, and they started getting to the PPP and the direct funds and everything. And then they wanted to say, you know, the IRS is going to look at all bank transactions are going to have to send their bank statements to the IRS and anybody making any transaction over 600 is going to get flagged. Well, that got shot down out of hell, thank God, because, you know, one, it was just unfeasible that every bank was going to upload their bank statements to the IRS of all people, and they were going to monitor everybody. And that was part of, and frankly, this is part of Biden's budget is we're going to get every nickel and dime that we're owed in taxes because God forbid somebody sell a lawnmower for 50 bucks and put it in their pocket. We need to get a piece of that, you know? Um, so that, 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 that's a facetious little remark, but that's exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to make it so you can't go and do a sale like that without us knowing about it, without us taxing you. Um, you know, even though that you bought it with after tax dollars and you exchanged it with after tax dollars, we're going to tax you one more time. And also, too, you know, we talk about the weaponizing of the IRS with the 87,000 agents or whatever. You know, they're not out there to, to sit there and audit quarter, you know, high income earners, 400,000 higher. You know, he talks about anyone making 400,000 or more, you're going to get taxed, and anybody below is not going to have to pay more taxes unless we catch you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if we audit you, we have enough people to audit, we can squeeze more tax dollars because we don't want to be the ones to say we're going to raise the marginal rate. So we're just going to squeeze more out of the stone that we have. They think that there's this pot of gold of all these, you know, scoff laws that are out there buying and selling things and not paying a fair, a quote, a fair share of taxes. Okay. Well, you know, like like Trump said when they debated with Hillary, you know, okay, I don't pay a lot in taxes, but you made the rules. And, you know, that's the other thing that they leave out of that discussion is, you know, we want people to pay more taxes. Well, okay, but you made the rules and people are, some are following the rules and still not paying taxes. So how are you going to fix that? You know, I mean, I'm going off on a different rail, but the point being is, there were moves being made that were setting up towards exactly what you're saying, in my opinion, too. If they were allowed to go through, could we be there now already or be there quicker? It's like they want to accelerate something to a point of, you know, we're just going to make it happen. It's like EVs or like electric vehicles are just, you know, we're in a transition right now. Everybody's going to have to get one at some point. Why don't we get them now when the technology sucks 
and you can't tow a boat more than 50 yards and without the battery going down. Well, why would I buy that? You know, you're not incentivizing me. Mm -hmm. But if they were going to make those moves earlier where the Fed was going to be the complete backstop and the IRS is coming through and squeeze, 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 could we get to an opportunity in government or thinking in big government terms? Could we get to that point where everybody's just going to have digital currency? You'll have some cash out there, but we're going to not really use cash. You're going to have to use a debit card so we can find your transaction. Like PayPal, I get an example. A buddy of mine, we bought tickets to a football game. He's going to send me money through PayPal. Well, he has a business account in PayPal. He sent money through his business account to me. I got dinged like $2 because it was a, they thought it was a business transaction, not person to person for just reimbursing them for tickets. So even PayPal is starting to scrape the business people. If you're doing a transaction, you're trying to find it. Not a tax, but a fee to them. So imagine all the electronic transfers of everything being totally booked and everybody see, the government can see everything you're never going to be able to move without the government. And I do, I think they'll eventually want to get there. I'm sure that's the Holy grail of government taxation. And um, not just taxation, which falls under the rubric of say surveillance, but programmable, right. pro programmable money in which mm -hmm. they can control not just what piece they get of the action, but they control the action itself. No, you can't go here yeah. or rather we're going to inhibit you in some purchases and we're going to actually encourage you in others. That's the other element. Let's take that algorithm one step further. Let's call it a social credit score. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, you go to McDonald's five times a week. True. You know, you really wanted that. Uh, you really wanted that heart transplant, but you know, you just don't take care of yourself well enough. Sorry. Well, you lay in one payer, one payer healthcare, which I'm starting to become a proponent of. I've been getting, I've had a lot of medical, not myself, but my wife had some medical things and it has come home yeah. to just bite us financially. So I'm getting more into the mindset of a one payer system, mm -hmm. but I'm combine that with what we just talked about. And all of a sudden we like these transactions. We don't like these transactions and hitting you maybe with a fee, a little fee on that. You want to go to McDonald's? Okay, it's going to cost you a dollar extra every time you go. You yes, go oh, now we're going to raise that fee to $2, $5, $10. And under this thing, you want to move the money supply? Change the exchange rate on it. And if it's all digital, every dollar in there is now worth 75 cents. Everybody's got 25% off without a blink. So, yeah, I mean, that's their grail. I don't know if they'll get there in our lifetime. But they're trying to make moves incrementally that are going to get us there at some point. I don't know when. Right. The people who had, I first heard this from, I was telling Brian this, had said, I, when I first heard about this in 2020, this, all the COVID stuff is when I started to hear more about this whole plan. It's part of the fourth industrial revolution and, and the connection between that. vaccine passports and digital IDs mm -hmm. that were then connected to, that were necessary for the implementation of a digital currency and how these are connected to. A, a, which which global currency, which will be the global currency? Will it be the dollar? Will it be something that comes out of the BRICS? You know, um, that is also part of this discussion because both two power centers now are moving towards digital currency, but a different a different sort of digital currency. Um, mm. 
the thing I had heard was that the plan was to have this started by 2025. That seems that was back in 2020 when I heard about that. That seems very um, like a very ambitious to get there uh, where we currently are. You know, it's 2023, um, but I do think it's definitely within. I think well before 2030 is the is the idea of of having to move to that. And I do think it's going to be crisis after crisis after crisis that's going to get us well, there. And that's where the that's question. That's the only way they can do it. Right. And that's where the question, this is why people go, is this a essentially a natural accident or a engineered crisis? Um, I, you know, it could be a, it, it's, it, I think it's a combination of both. I think it's kind of, it's a trial balloon. Okay. This thing happened. Do we let it happen? How do we respond to it? And how does the, how does the, how does the public respond to how we're handling it? Yeah. So if the next one happens, we, we have a blueprint for the next time. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying, crisis after crisis. Well, you know, you take, you take a dog, you put them on a chain link, right? And you keep chain link out each time and taking it tighter and the dog gets used to it before it's down to two links and it's just sitting there and it's never going to move and it doesn't try to move. Right. It doesn't try. It's conditioned. So here comes the crisis. Chain link comes out. Think of like the American person on the end of that chain and chink, chink, um, chink, you know, chain links come out, bing, bing, bing. And all of a sudden we're all conditioned to go. Yeah. Okay. This is where right. I'm at. Right. And nobody and wants to resist. Nobody wants to try to break the chain. Nobody wants to try to stop it from happening. Yeah. And, and you mentioned social credit score. I think the way it's been, the, the letters over on this side are ESG and environmental, environmentally, what's yes. that? What's that? That's what they want the pension funds to invest now. Yeah. And it's so interesting that the, so much of your ESG scores are going to be, con, I mean, how much of it's connected to climate change and how much climate change being talked about in terms of CO2 production. And isn't it convenient that humans actually produce CO2 and we can maybe give you a score. And we can basically, you know, what's your footprint? You know, what is your footprint? And we can start start to influence what you do for the good of mm -hmm. the environment, for the good of us all. Yeah, and you and you you just made another one. Let's, I mean, it's it's a layering effect. So you bring in carbon based tax on top of a country or on top of an industry, and you lay in you lay in all those things to try to happen, but. But here's the thing, they try one and it scares you and everybody goes back to let's watch football, let's watch whatever, and look over here, and then we're going to try this again. Oh, that didn't work this time, we're going to back off. But they, they, it's like a rubber band, it, it, they snap it and they let it go, but it's never fully elastic to the same point. And they know they can pull it a little further and a little further, but it's a layering effect that's a happening, you know. Here comes carbon. Here comes ES. Here comes social credit score. Here comes the Fed is the backstop. Here come you know you yeah. layer all that in and you move each piece on the board a little bit at a time. Eventually, you'll get where you want to go. Yeah, I hope I don't see it in my lifetime because I think that I don't know that. But they're going to say that it's to help help you to protect you to make oh, sure no. you'll be okay. I'm okay. I'll figure it out myself. I mean, <laughs> I don't need right. the, whatever it is. I don't need your protection. <laughs> I think, I mean, I know you have kids and I, I, I do think it's in our lifetime. I think, I think it's in their lifetime. Yeah. I think this is very much connected even to like the kinds of pressures that are taking place globally around what's going on in Ukraine, the kinds of forces that are coming into play there and mm -hmm. how they get drawn in. I I do think the Fed is up to no good here, but 
but I also think there's a economic system at play here that they that they are trying that in a sense I think there was a crisis here that the Fed is opportunistically taking advantage of, um, but at the same time it's I think it's a crisis that also is something that is 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 a problem for the United States in the context of their economic competition with China and and Russia, um, and so I but I think each each power is ultimately is forced to go back to its own people to say, what will I extract from you to keep ourselves whole? Like, and that's that top mm-hmm. layer, the people layer at the top. That's going to be done by the CCP in China. That's going to be done by Putin. And that's going to be done by Biden and, you know, the layer. Else is in power. Yeah. Yeah. It really doesn't matter who's in power. They're just, yeah. they're this far apart. They just <laughs> yeah. look, you know, we're, we all want to keep the, we all want to keep the status quo. Yeah. We, we might want to spend money differently. But we still want your money. Yeah. We just want to get to it quicker, maybe on one side of the coin than the other. So, Rob, what did you make of the employees at uh, SVB receiving bonuses right before the collapse? <laughs> that is uh, called a claw. They, they should have that a claw back. They should get that money back somehow. I think the Federal Reserve or the Fed or whoever is going to be, who's ever overseeing that right now, is going to be significantly looking into those types of payouts and they'll have to give it back. I mean, there's no way they can keep that money. Same thing with any, any executive selling the stock short or any executive bailing out before the shit hit the fan and taking their money and running. Um, You know, I, I just feel that they will get caught and it'll be all insider trading and stock manipulation and, you know, you shouldn't be able to pull your bonuses out because you didn't really earn anything when everything tanks, you know. Um, one thing in banking we do is at management level, um, I have a con- I have a I have an employment contract. And, you know, part of that employment contract is called change of control. So if the bank is sold to somebody else or it's merged up with some other bank and I don't survive my job into that next bank, there's a payout coming my way. Um, not a huge one, but a payout, you know. Um, same thing happened here. Yeah, there's a change of control. But when you're driving the train and you put that train into a wall, should you still get change of control payout? I don't know what the context of the bonuses were. Was it a bonus because they performed well? No. <laughs> Was it a change of control payment because the government took over the bank? No, because again, you steered it into the wall. How to come you can get rewarded for that. So I do think the oversight of this bank when they're trying to put the pieces together and giving it out to other banks, whatever they're going to buy it out for assets or liabilities, um, they're going to have to claw that back and get that money. No, no one on that side, whoever got those funds, if they're trying to spend it right now, they're going to be deep into it legally right now. So I, I, I don't think it's a good thing. I, I think they should, you know, claw that money back as fast as they let it get out the door. Um, but until the Fed stepped in to be able to stop those payments, those payments were out. So I'm sure they're already in contact with them to say, hey, you better find that money and bring it back to us or you're going to be spending some time in jail for uh, for stock manipulation, fiduciary responsibility of shirking your responsibilities of fiduciary. You know, there's a lot of things you can do as a regulator to bank management who don't run the bank properly. 
Um, when banks do exams, we do get you know memos from the regulator. Some of them are called um, manage um, MRAs, management response um, art action plan. So we need to action plan a specific item because they found it a concern. Um, sometimes the regulator will come back if it's really egregious. They'll come back and say memorandum of understanding or cease and desists will occur. It's never occurred in any of our banks, but those are the types of the tools they have. And if they really find malfeasance, they can do what they know as civil money penalties against management. They can fine you personally, and the bank cannot pay that fine for you. You have to pay it out of your personal funds. Um, so, you know, if you're fined as a banker $25,000, you can't go into the bank and say, well, bank, pay my fine. No, that has to come from you. And the other thing that Fed, any regulator can do after they really find malfeasance, like embezzlement or things of that nature, they can ban someone for life from ever holding another banking position, even from a teller on up for the rest of their natural life. So if you're 45 or 50 and that's been your life and you, you know, stepped in it and you got into a crime, you're never working in banking again. Get ready to learn how to flip a hamburger, you know. Well, I guess so, that isn't that certainly is an interesting tool belt of of potential punishments. But I you're think welcome. if 2008 has anything we should learn from that crisis is that no one from this is going to get punished. <laughs> and secondly, yeah. There was a quote. I will say, yeah, I I still have faith in it. I still have faith that there's there is justice across the board. Here's a second reason why I know there isn't. I was going (laughs) to cite another quote though that was related to because there was a debate even in Congress or among about should they have bailed out their should they be allowed to bail out their investors? Um, And one of the there was a quote I found I wanted to share with you because it was interesting. This guy said one anonymous source involved in the lobbying campaign, and this was a lobbying campaign to say no the investors should be bailed out, said the theme of the pitch was SVB is not a bank, meaning that SVB is an innovation company. And it said, this is the US versus China. You can't kill these innovative companies. Basically saying, we essentially not just too big to fail, but you know these, this is our tip of our spear versus China. These have to succeed. We can't allow them to go down. So I personally think SV, the people who did their, any malfeasance in SVB which probably wasn't even as deep as what was done in 2008. I don't think they're going to see any sort of like, Mm. I think they're going to be protected to the hilt because they're in that, that sweet spot of the Silicon Valley of that, Mm. of that tech sector, which the U S is planning on using as part of its competitive edge against China. Now there's like, you're saying investors, I think there's two, two levels of investor. One is the stockholders. They're gone. They're not, you're not getting your stock back. You're gone is the who invested the capital in the bank you know who when they started the bank they started with what i don't know say 50 million dollars who put that money up should they get bailed out no because you were probably on the board and you saw these reports and you didn't raise your hand and go i think your duration reports a little bit tilted or i think your interest rate risk is at is significantly got a problem um you know, you, you should have done something. You need to do something about it now. Management or board didn't take that fiduciary responsibility to heart. They all just walked around, nodded at each other at the boardroom table and said, yeah, we're great. You know, one thing I don't understand about this bank is with this interest rate risk, 
there are things you can do in an investment side. They're very derivative investments that you can do to offset interest rate risk. They are risky investments themselves, but they can hedge that risk and get payout. So why didn't they do any of those maneuvers to hedge those risks when they knew the bank was tilted heavy on the assets and within those assets heavy on investment, which makes their interest rate risk significant? They could have done other things to move money around to shelter it a little bit maybe that maybe their ass still hits the ground but it doesn't break into a hundred pieces it just cracks mm-hmm. but they didn't do it yeah and the people who invested the capital are on the board and they didn't do anything either so f them yeah. too and i have a feeling they're going to be fine. <laughs> if anybody's worried I'm about sure. things, <laughs> i think I'm they're, sure they're fine <laughs> oh instead of Instead of a hundred million dollars, I have fifty million. <laughs> uh, actually, instead of a hundred, now they have three hundred million. Just to be quiet. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Rob, um, one other question. Sorry, we, sure. we uh, you know, a lot of talk has been had about Biden says that taxpayers, regular taxpayers, will not be bailing out bank. What is going to be? What's how is it? this bank going to bailed out? Uh, that is the million dollar question. Um, I think it's a combination of, <clears throat> you know, how much cash the Fed has on hand. You know, their balance sheet, like I was saying, has nine, $10 trillion. I don't know offhand how much of that is cash. Um, the other thing is, is, uh, how much does the FDIC have and what portion they're going to play in propping this up? And then if they're going to go out to significant, I would call it elites, whether it's Warren Buffett or whether it's, um, you know, other large banks, Wells, Chase, whatever, you know, are they going to come in and buy those assets out, buy the loans? So what are they going to do with the investments? Who's going to buy those? Who's going to buy the deposits? So, you know, all these things are going to get kind of sh- shimmied out. It's not like this bank's going to survive and keep operating. So when he's saying the taxpayers aren't going to pay anything, I think what he's trying to imply is, well, we're not going to just, you know, print more money to bail this bank out. So when 08 went down, 09, 010, you know, Buffett was a big part of bailing out um, Goldman Sachs and a part of bailing out some of these large, he, he got pieces of um, Chase. So he he gets, a, he gets a reward for this. I mean, he's not doing it from pragmatism. He's doing it from what do I get and how much more can I make? I mean, he has his own investment group for himself for his shareholders. What is he going to, what, what is that? He's not doing it personally. He does not, personal wealth isn't going into that, but his business wealth can go there and help prop these things up or buy them out at small pieces on the dollar. Um, and also too, the Federal Reserve may come up and say, you know what, these bonds are underwater, but we'll back the bond. And if you sell it because you have to sell it, we'll back your um, loss, so to speak. We'll backstop it. So. You know, I think what it is is that this is 
trying to keep itself contained to one bank. Because like I said earlier in the conversation, Yellen and, and company were walking a lot of that back about, does this mean all banks are fully insured and every deposit in the world, every deposit in the United States is okay? Because if, you if you're doing that, you're nationalizing all the banks. You know, what's the point of having, you know, PDQ Bank, XYZ Bank, Chase? Why have names on them if you're just going to back it all up? You know, it's all just one one big stew of banks. You know, you're just going to back it all up. Well, then that they started walking that back. They what they she said. If you listen to Yellen, she said the Federal Reserve Board, a supermajority of that board, sixty percent of those governors of those Federal Reserve banks, and herself have to approve that they're going to back a bank a hundred percent. So. Well, what bank is that? If it's a small Midwestern $200 million regional, are they going to back them? But there, again, keep in mind, Eduardo, in that bank in the middle of Midwest, 90% of those deposits are already covered by the FDIC. So they're going to back that bank. It's not going to take a lot to back every piece of that bank. But if you extrapolate that against the whole system, I don't know where they're going to be saying the taxpayer is not paying. This one, where they're saying it's not paying is because... The Fed is probably using its cash on the balance sheet to help cover things. They're going to the larger banks to help buy the pieces out. So in a sense, how much cash is coming off the Fed balance sheet to back this bank, that remains to be seen. But that money, in the sense of taxpayers aren't paying for anything because that money is already sunk. It's already spent. It's already been printed. So they won't have to pay more. They're just going to use another part of the money that's already been printed. You know what I'm saying? Um, so by verbalization, he's telling the truth. But in reality, if any money's coming out of the Fed, the Fed only has money from what it printed. And the only way it prints money is because you're going to put it into the national debt. And that debt is already on the taxpayer. So if it's already printed, technically, well, you're not backing it up. You know, you, you got the, the the American citizens themselves are not paying for it out of pocket. So you're not printing more money and putting more on their back. If that's his definition of that, then he's correct. But if he can, how much are they going to break it up for and who's buying it? You know, and if the Fed's going to backstop losses on the bond portfolio, because who's going to buy a bunch of 2% coupons, especially when I can invest the same amount of money, and get 5% on a six month treasury right now. Six-month treasuries at 5%. I never thought I'd see the day. Hmm. That's insane. Six months, I get 5%. No duration issues, no risk of liquidity. I'm going to get my money back in six months and get 5%. That's insane money making right there. So why would I buy their 2% bonds and 1.5% bonds on their balance sheet unless I'm getting some type of sweetheart backups, backstop on the losses? Or I'm getting some tax credit in the future. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know how the lie is being told, but I th it seems to me it's they're just trying to say we're we're going to we're going to bail out these very wealthy people and institutions. We're going to try to hide from you the fact that this is somehow coming from you. Yeah, it's kind of like Leslie Nielsen in uh, The Naked Gun when the fireworks Thing, the fireworks, the buildings going off behind, disperse, nothing to see here. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's like Biden. Nothing to see. Yeah. Don't look over here. 
everything will be fine. This isn't 2008 at any, you know, I still and, believe it's not 2008 in a systemic re, systemic level, but all banks are holding these losses. Yeah. All banks are holding these losses. It's just, they got caught not having enough cash on hand to convince people that they didn't need to get every dollar they needed out of their bank. Right. But those in the tech sector burn through cash the way, you know, wildfires happen. They're not ready for it. They get burned. Yeah. And the only other thing I'll say about Biden is he knows that the media establishment is so tied to trying to keep him propped up that he can pretty much oh. just say anything and he's going to face no sort of pushback or secondary yeah. question. And if they do, if they do, they can find a way of isolating that person from the press corps. It's like they do with Peter Tucci from uh, Fox. Yep. <laughs> he tries every day. I give him a lot of credit. He goes up there and he jams him with something. Doesn't get anywhere, but you know he's fighting the fight. He's trying, but you know. But I agree. They're just they don't care. They're they're there to keep his keep that boy in power. <laughs> he's got. Oh, he's Robert, I think I appreciate you coming on today and just sharing hey, your knowledge. You. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to just talk with you about this stuff yeah it you know it's it, it's it's just amazing sometimes when you see the story repeated it's just we're in a different book it's the same story it's just a different book with a different set of rules you know but is it going to happen again sure it will i mean yeah. i said it in a, la- a couple of podcasts back where it's like crisis or issue happen we learn from it another issue in a different way happens think about it 91, 92, savings and loan. 2008, the crash of the of the housing and auto market simultaneously. Who would have thought? And then now this coming out of COVID and with inflation afoot. Now this is happening where, you know, we spiked interest rates at the highest pace in the history of this country. I mean, the 80s didn't even compare to what's happening right now. Um you know, like I said, though, every bank has these losses on their books because they were buying bonds. You had to do something with your money. You can't let it sit. And, you know, if everybody walked into every bank tomorrow, every bank would fail because we just don't have all the cash on hand. Yep. It just doesn't work that way. We'll get you the cash, you know, but we're going to at what cost? Capital. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well. Well, if, I, if there's any other on. questions, if you if you're going through the editing process and you want clarifications on something, we can always regroup so we can splice that in or whatever we want to do. I think I, mean, I think most of this will be good. I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, and I think it's just going to be they're going to be around too. Eventually, something's going to happen again where we're going to have to talk about another shade because, like you said, there are similarities, but there are real differences in each of these. I just feel like right. I'm learning over time. That's how I look at it, and mm-hmm. I just think. You know, um, well, I suspect we'll be seeing you sooner than two years from now. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm open for any topic, though. It doesn't have to just be in the business or bank. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> true. Well, you know, there's, the, the election is going to come up again. I'm certainly curious what you're going to be doing around that. So we that was one of the reasons um, we invited I'll, you. Is... I'll, I'll give you a preview on that one. Um, <laughs> if Trump would be the nominee, I just won't vote. <laughs> very, very interesting so that, I know, that's a that vote. I know people will itself, say it's a vote for Biden but you know no, that in and of itself is going to will be an interesting return to a discussion we had you know we were we were trying to like 
talk about well, who are these Trump voters, you know, talk to you and we talked to Jake. And I thought it was very, it was very helpful for us to kind of like, these are, this is what these people, this is who these people are. They're not these crazy white supremacist tattooed yeah. Azov battalion, whatever, you know. Um, but I think it will be good to return to that and see what people like yourself, how you've digested the last three or four years, you know? Yeah. But it'll be interesting when we get to that point, yeah. but anytime you want to bring me on, I'm, I'm glad to bring my opinion, but I'm like you said, I mean, people who can debate and talk about, Hey, I might not see your point of view 100%, but I could see some of it and I'll take that. And maybe you get something from me. Yeah. Definitely. You know, and say, yeah, it's a thing to think about. I never really thought of it that way. But people can have these discourse and have normal debate and discussion. It's not like, oh, I'm not going to talk to you because, you know, you're from this side and I'm from that. When did that happen? I, I, I don't know. Now, apparently now. <laughs> yeah. Critical thinking and just intellectual just discourse. I don't get it. I don't understand. There, We are being actively divided. We are actively divided well, you keep a prison in line now they think america is just a prison you're here you're here camp 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 keep divide and conquer yep. if we ever get together well we'll be fighting the same fight let's put it that way and i, I stand yeah. for freedom without tyranny and i want to be able to express and be and who and what you know i want people to all have the ability to do what they want to do not not have the government in our face Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not a big. I don't trust them as much. I've never mm. had for a while. Yeah. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Uh, What's left is a weekly political podcast, a channel challenging the mainstream left. Post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog at whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks if you like anything you have heard here, please subscribe, rate, review turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on the Spotify, iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, Rumble, or Telegram. And you can find our blog in any of those links in the episode notes wherever you found this episode. And if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barca with Jessica. And uh, you can always find our social media handle as at Don Eduardo Barca and at ZDKE and at jhomie 89 all right, thank you all for listening. And thanks, Rob, for joining us. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Eduardo, Andy. Right. Pleasure to be here, and I thank you very much. Yeah, thanks a lot. And Jessica, sorry you couldn't make it on, but we'll get you back next week. All right, ciao. ciao. See you, Joe.